Can you feel it? Your heart beats faster. You struggle to catch your breath. Your mind races. The time has come once again for the Deep Dive Podcast's Horror Month. Join us if you dare. <laughs> Hello, divers. Welcome to week two of Horror Month 2021. As is tradition here in Studio D, we are celebrating this October with Horror Month. Five Fridays of Frightful Fun. <sighs> I'm Tom Feeney, writer for Wang's Chop Movie Magazine. Sadly, my partner in crime, Manda, is still under the weather and will not be joining us, which sucks because I'm all alone here and it's scary and I need my blanket. But anyway, please send Manda all the positive vibes, thoughts, and well wishes you can as she recovers. We miss you, Manda. So I'm holding down the fort for now, and that means I will be presenting you with my personal top 10 horror films of the 1980s. Now, these picks are not necessarily the best movies of the decade, but rather my own personal favorites and are presented in no particular order. Now, even without the horror movies, the 1980s were a pretty scary decade. The AIDS epidemic, Challenger shuttle disaster, the Cold War and the threat of nuclear annihilation, and of course, New Coke. To me, and a lot of other people, the 1980s was the greatest decade for horror movies. Both practical and makeup effects were at their peak before computer-generated imagery ruined it all. The level of craftsmanship by special effects artists was unparalleled. Directors were able to have their visions come to life and death like never before. Now that wasn't always the case though. The 80s was also known for churning out bad Z-grade horror and crappy teen slasher movies left and right. But the scream of the crop were some of the greatest horror movies of all time. Names like Carpenter and Cronenberg, King and Clive Barker broke all the rules when it came to terrorizing audiences. And I was all about it. I can pretty much define my 80s horror habits by format. So this was the decade where a kid could walk into their local video store and rent anything from alien contamination to Zombie 3. Now roughly half the movies on my list are ones I saw in the theater and the rest on good old VHS. We were not a Betamax family. Our first VCR was this used 20-pound top-loading behemoth with a wired remote. That's right, a wired remote. That wireless stuff was way too fancy for us. It made noises no machine should ever make and did so very loudly. In fact, it sounded exactly like this. 
Back in the 80s, the video rental business was dominated mostly by small mom and pop stores. Yeah, there were a few local chains to be sure, but for the entrepreneur looking to start a business with fairly low overhead and startup costs, video stores were a pretty good bet back then. As long as you had a good location, you could make decent money. Of course, this was uh, before the ugh, awful, awful blockbuster bulldozed its way across the country during the 1990s, killing off many of those small independent stores. But it was those small stores and the dedicated people who worked there who would shape the movie-going tastes of an entire generation. Now, the first section of tapes I would gravitate towards was the one marked Staff's Picks. It was like the chef's specials at a restaurant. Whatever was on that shelf was probably a good bet. Now, nostalgia is a powerful drug, and the films on my top 10 terrors of the 80s never fail to release those sweet, sweet endorphins in my brain. So in no particular order, let's get started. The first on my list is a movie that was released smack dab in the middle of the decade, 1985. It was that year a Chicago area producer and director of stage productions, Stuart Gordon, decided to try his hand at making a movie. He would use a lot of the tricks and effects he learned from his stage productions to make a truly unique, shocking, and at times absurdly hilarious horror movie. The result? Reanimator. Herbert West is at the top of his class in medical school. How can you teach such drivel? These people are here to learn and you're closing their minds before they even have a chance. What are He's you? brilliant, but a little weird. I've broken the six to 12 minute barrier. I've conquered brain death. His experiments have always been unorthodox. It was dead. I but lately they're getting out of hands. And he's just made a discovery that could wake up the dead. Herbert West has affected reanimation in dead animal tissue. 15 cc's of reagent being once you wake up the dead, you've got a real mess on your hands. Homer, you're insane! Now what happened? I had to kill him! He's dead? Not anymore. Herbert West brought a lot of dead people back to life. And not one of them showed any appreciation. H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft's classic tale of horror, Reanimator. Mr. West. You'll never get credit for my discovery. Who's going to believe a talking head? Get a job in a sideshow. It will scare you to pieces. The adaptation of literary horror legend H.P. Lovecraft's 1922 story, Herbert West, Reanimator, was about a medical student who develops a fluid that can bring the dead back to life. Sort of. The results are somewhat unpredictable. The dead are reanimated, but not too happy. The CIRM's inventor, Dr. Herbert West, is played with manic brilliance by Jeffrey Combs. He recruits a fellow med student to test his serum on dead bodies. It doesn't work out. 
They even tested on individual body parts, including a decapitated doctor who winds up carrying his own reanimated head around with him. It's totally ridiculous, but since it's not played for laughs per se, all you can do is stare at the screen wondering, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? It really is an amazing film. While other filmmakers would only hint at the insanity going on, writer-director Gordon just goes for it. And it's awesome. It is most decidedly not for kids. It is bloody, gruesome, and there are situations that I won't go into because it's a family-friendly podcast. Just trust me. Now, a lot of what I said about Reanimator can be said about the next film on my list. It had a director who was just getting started in his career and would blend insanely clever and bloody horror with the blackest sense of humor. I am, of course, referring to Sam Raimi's 1987 film, Evil Dead 2. Now, Raimi's first theatrical film, The Evil Dead, was a no-budget movie that came out of nowhere but achieved some success due to the imaginative camera work and improvised special effects. The movie got Raimi noticed and got him a shot at directing another movie. A mix of murder, mayhem, and slapstick comedy that just might propel Raimi into the big leagues. Unfortunately, that movie was a tremendous flop called Crime Wave. It's a movie that, if it were made today, might be a critical and box office success. Why? Well, not only was Crime Wave directed by Sam Raimi, but written by his friends Joel and Ethan Cohen. Yes, the same ones behind Fargo, The Big Lebowski, and No Country for Old Men. But this was back in 1985, and none of them had any real Hollywood experience. That led to studio interference, cast and crew changes, and recuts. The entire process was such a disappointment to Raimi that he decided to do his next project without any studio interference to make the movie he wanted to make. And the only way to do so was to essentially remake the movie that first got him noticed. So, after getting some financing from Italian movie mogul Dino De Laurentiis, he went to work on Evil Dead 2. Four years ago, in this quiet forest, in this cozy cabin, something happened. Something so frightening. Something so deadly. Something so evil. We prayed it would never happen again. Now, from the creator of Evil Dead, comes Evil Dead 2.
two dead by dawn. Evil Dead 2 is a whirling dervish of a movie. It starts firing on all cylinders and does not stop until the bizarre twist ending. There is blood in all colors of the spectrum at play here, and our poor hero, and I use that in air quotes, Ash stupidly plays a tape of ancient incantations, releasing a demonic force dwelling in the woods near the old cabin where he and his girlfriend were hoping for a nice relaxing weekend. And that's the entire plot. To try to even describe the madness that occurs during the film's short 84-minute running time would be futile. It's like trying to describe a Looney Tunes cartoon. It would be completely lost in the translation. There is so much going on here, and it's done with so much reckless abandon. You can't help feel a little giddy watching it. Now, I saw this in a theater in 1987, quite by accident. I was waiting for some friends to arrive at the local movie theater to go see another movie entirely. They were late, and the last film left playing was, yep, Evil Dead 2. So I knew nothing about it going in. Never heard of the first film. I was a total blank slate. And I was completely blown away. How did this get made? It really kick-started my interest in films that were somewhat off the beaten path. Back in the 1950s, horror movies were quite a bit tamer. There were rules against showing things that were too horrific. No gushers of blood, no gory entrails, no truly gruesome imagery at all, really. That and the fact that special effects just weren't that advanced at the time. Movie studios had their own makeup departments, but they were mostly there to make the actors look good, not to create scary monsters or stage grisly murders. So it made sense that, during the 80s, many directors who grew up loving those old horror movies would seek out to remake them using modern technology and modern filmmaking techniques. I have two examples on my top 10 list. The first is a remake of a 1958 movie about a man, a woman, and an insect, The Fly. The original movie starring horror icon Vincent Price was about a scientist who creates a matter teleportation machine and has his atoms scrambled with the atoms of a common housefly with horrific results. Nearly 30 years later, director David Cronenberg would offer his own take on the story. A take which would keep the original's main idea, but update everything else. In 1985, 20th Century Fox released David Cronenberg's The Fly. I think you're making a mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yep, they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. There is a limit, even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. weird hairs that were growing out of your back, I had them analyzed. But they were definitely not human. 
If you saw how scared and angry and desperate he is. I'm sure Typhoid Mary was a very nice person, too, when you saw her socially. No! You're afraid to be destroyed and recreated, aren't you? You're changing, Seth. Everything about you is changing. Oh, no. What's happening to me? Am I dying? I want to know what's going on. What does the disease want? It wants to turn me into something else. Oh, no. A fly got into the transmitter pod with me that first time when I was alone. Don't go back to it. It could be contagious. Uh, I'm afraid! Don't be afraid! No. Be afraid. Be very afraid. time, an introverted scientist named Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, is using parts made by other scientists to secretly construct these teleportation pods. Gina Davis is a reporter for a science magazine who discovers Brundle's secret, but is convinced by Brundle to hold off writing about it until the experiment is completed. The two begin a collaboration and soon start a romantic relationship, but the good times don't last. In a fit of jealousy, Brundle tests the pods on himself, unaware that a fly has entered his pod with him. The machine fuses man and fly at the genetic level. Brundle soon begins to deteriorate, both physically and mentally. His body mutates. His mind becomes more and more unstable and violent, ultimately threatening everyone around him. Cronenberg is a master at what's called body horror, where your own body becomes your enemy. Brundle's deterioration is like an insidious form of cancer eating away at him until there's almost nothing human left. It's like watching a loved one slowly dying of a terrible disease, but even more horrific given what's actually happening to Brundle. The film itself is a true achievement. It does not shy away from the gruesomeness but you feel tremendous empathy for both leads. That sets it apart from most horror films, no matter when they were made. The other remake of a classic horror film that made it on my list is one that was either... Stop. The other remake of a classic horror film that made it on my list is one that was either lambasted or just ignored during its theatrical release. Now it's considered a real classic of the genre. This one really needs no introduction. John Carpenter's masterpiece of claustrophobic paranoia, 1982's The Thing. It was a remake of another classic, Howard Hawke's 1951 film, The Thing from Another World. Carpenter's take involved a group of men at a research facility in Antarctica, fighting against an unknown alien that can take on the form of any living creature. The incredibly imaginative and also really gooey effects are the star here. That and the truly claustrophobic atmosphere Carpenter manages to create serves to make this a really effective horror film. Next is a title that I have reviewed on this podcast before. A delicious blend of horror and satire served by the court. 1985's The Stuff. 
presentation with the following urgent message tonight america is in grave danger we are under alien attack by a popular dessert known as the stuff here jason take some no don't eat that there is something alive in there tasty there's something alive in yogurt it's called benign bacteria If the stuff is in your house, do not eat it. If you have it on your shelves, do not sell it. If you distribute this material, close your doors, make no more sales. have a sweet tooth, an occasional craving for something in the candy, pie, cake, or ice cream families. Now, certain desserts can be downright addictive, but in the movie The Stuff, it's also deadly. In the film, a thick marshmallow-like substance is discovered oozing out of the ground. And by some miracle, it's really sweet and delicious. So of course it gets branded, packaged, and sold to unsuspecting Americans all over. In fact, the stuff is really an alien organism, effectively eating people from the inside out. Ugh. The entire movie is a rant against rampant consumerism with fake TV commercials hawking the stuff. It's a fun movie to watch, not too scary, but filled with ooey, gooey, well, stuff. Moving on, the 80s saw the proliferation of the horror movie franchise. If one slasher movie is good, 10 more will be great. Yeah, not really. The law of diminishing returns would say otherwise. Most sequels are obvious cash grabs that are there just to feed the Hollywood beast. Horror movies especially. My next two picks are, to me anyway, exceptions to that law. They also happen to be the third films in their respective franchises. A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, and Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Now, I really can't say anything more about Wes Craven's original Nightmare on Elm Street than has already been said by many, many others. It was a groundbreaking blend of fantasy and horror that would influence horror films to this day. Uh, there's also been a lot said about the second entry in that series, Freddy's Revenge. For that whole story, check out the recent documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, available on Amazon's Prime Video. It deals with that film's impact on LGBTQ horror fans. But that brings me to part three, Dream Warriors. Oddly, this movie has kind of a similar feel to recent Avengers movies. You get a group of people brought together to use their abilities to fight a seemingly unstoppable foe. 
Of course, that's an oversimplification, but it does kind of fit. The last group of Elm Street kids are in a mental hospital, fighting to stay awake and stay away from Freddy Krueger, that dreamboat with the rusty cuticles. Once again, I love this movie because it just goes all out with the action, the dream elements, the special effects, and the fun. It also holds a special place for me because it was the first nightmare on Elm Street movie I saw in the theater. And I saw all the rest of them from that point forward for better or worse. Next on that list is the Black Sheep of the Halloween franchise. The film that answered the question, what if we made a Halloween movie without Michael Myers in it? The answer, it made very little money, that is. You don't really know much about Halloween. Halloween. The barriers will be down between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red. Halloween, the children. You happen to know anything about this Cochran? All I can tell you, mister, is watch out. Season He's watching you, friend, I guarantee you that. Hey, Mr. Cochran, just what is the final process? Fellas, I was just kidding. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. Hey! Where are they taking her? They're taking her to the factory. I want a mask. Can I have a mask? Uh, just what I had in mind for you, little buddy. Why, do I need a reason? I've got nothing here to indicate there was ever a body at all. Operator, this is an emergency. I do love a good joke, and this is the best ever. A joke on the children. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. You've got to believe me. They're going to kill us. All of us. Stop it! The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. Happy Halloween. Stop it! Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, the night no one comes home. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, was for a long time hated by just about every horror movie fan since it was released back in 1982. But I am happy to say that with the passing of time, people began to appreciate this absolutely bonkers movie on its own merits, not in relation to the other movies in the franchise. Now in hindsight, I dare say that Halloween 3 is better than Halloween's 5, 6, Halloween Resurrection, and both Rob Zombie directed abominations. Prove me wrong. So in this Myers-less movie, an old toy maker with a penchant for sorcery blends black magic with modern technology in a plot to massacre millions of mask-wearing trick-or-treaters all at once on Halloween night. Our only hope? A drunk, deadbeat dad who stumbles his way through this whole scheme trying to stop it from happening. Sounds fun, right? Okay, so it's a little goofy and ultimately doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I guess I have a soft spot for the underdog. And Halloween 3 is definitely the underdog of the franchise. But, like underdogs can do sometimes, it rises above its vaults and is a pretty good time waster. 
Two of the final three in my list are all from directors slash visionaries that I have already mentioned. In 1986, director Stuart Gordon followed up Reanimator with an even more insane adaptation of a Lovecraft story, From Beyond. Once again, we have a mad scientist. Once again, we have Jeffrey Combs playing his decidedly less insane assistant. The scientist has a machine that can tap into another dimension where these bizarre fish-like creatures swim through the air. Don't let them bite you though. Mm. Of course, more gross icky shenanigans and goings on ensue. Once again, the blend of comedy and gross out humor works brilliantly well. And there's a little kinkiness thrown in for good measure. You'll know what I mean when you see it. So that brings us back to Mr. David Cronenberg. Well, much of his output in the 80s could easily make this list, including Scanners, The Dead Zone, and Dead Ringers. My next pick is the ultimate horror movie for the generation that grew up, as I did, watching horror films on home video. 1983's Videodrome. Why did you watch it, Max? Business reasons. Sure. What about the other reasons? Max Wren is a victim. I woke up with a headache. He has been exposed to Videodrome. I've been hallucinating for a while, ever since... What? Since I first saw Videodrome. His brain is already receiving video images. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren, and Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. Long live the new flesh. It will shatter your reality. Videodrome. Videodrome. Starring Deborah Harry and James Woods. A shocking new vision from the creator of Scanners. Coming soon to a theater near you from Universal Pictures. The movie stars the loathsome James Woods playing a loathsome cable TV programmer named Max Wren. Back then, cable was pretty new and programming for these new channels was scarce. Max was looking for the next big thing when his video engineer stumbles upon a rogue satellite feed featuring images of what appears to be torture and murder. Intrigued, Max tries to track down the source of the transmission. He finds himself in the middle of a war between two factions. One is a corporation seeking to cleanse America by using a video signal that induces brain tumors in viewers who watch violent and sexual programming. The other faction is a video-obsessed religious cult who believes television is a path to enlightenment. Max is exposed to the Videodrome signal, and what he experiences blurs the line between fantasy and reality. 
The movie has a lot to say about the obsession people have with watching increasingly extreme content and possibly becoming desensitized by overexposure, which is a bold statement from a director who specialized in making extreme content. So great and inventive special effects are also a highlight here. Mixing the organic and the mechanical is a Cronenberg trademark, and Videodrome may be his best at doing just that. Last, but definitely not least, there's a film that defies most attempts to define it and describe it, yet it still led to a horror franchise of its own, one that had endured despite many attempts to kill it with terrible sequels. The working title of this movie was Sadomasochists from Beyond the Grave. Luckily, first-time writer-director Clive Barker decided to change it to simply Hellraiser. Hellraiser. Beyond any terror you have imagined. A nightmare. No. Unlike anything you have witnessed. Is born. Because within these walls, the unholy is unleashed. Apart. 1987's Hellraiser became a surprise hit, triggering acupuncturists around the globe. A puzzle box is the key to opening a portal to a hellish dimension ruled by bluish-gray demons called Cenobites. These Cenobites seem to have a fetish for leather, body modification, and a bit of a sadistic streak. You open the box, you summon the demons, they take you to their realm to torture you for eternity. Sounds like Disney World. What Clive Barker managed to accomplish here was a film that felt decidedly bleak in a very British way, repulsive, and even seductive. You know, it's like, uh, like trying to use the bathroom at a fetish ball. Sadly, once again, the law of diminishing returns kicks it again, although not until the third entry in the Hellraiser franchise. The second film, Hellbound Hellraiser 2, was a worthy sequel that expanded on the mythology of the Cenobites themselves, and it's well worth checking out, too. But anyway, that is my top 10 list. Here it is, in its entirety. For the 1980s, my top 10, Reanimator, Evil Dead 2, the 1985 version of The Fly, Videodrome, The Stuff, From Beyond, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, Hellraiser, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, and the 1982 remake of The Thing. All of these movies I mentioned can be found on the usual streaming services for rent or purchase. Speaking of purchase, did you know that we have some new merch in our merch store on our website? 
Specifically, we have a brand new horror month themed t-shirt with a flaming skull, wearing headphones, listening to, of course, Horror Month. So check it out on our website, thedeepdivepodcast.com. Like and subscribe, if you will. Give us a nice review on the Apple Podcasts. We would really love to hear from you as well. Any suggestions, comments, themes, rants, manifestos, whatever you want, please send it to us. We want to hear from you. And also keep sending those good vibes to Manda. And we hope to have her back with us really soon. Next week, we know them. We love them. We can't die without them. Horror movie franchises, like we talked about. From Freddy to Friday the 13th, from Poltergeist to The Purge, from The Living Dead to The Evil Dead. Join us for the best and worst horror movie franchises. That's next week. Until then, I'm Tom Feeney. Thanks again for listening. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your personal psychic, although they probably already know about it. And we will be back next week. The Deep Dive Podcast is a production of Automaton Studios. Uh, uh, uh.